it is awesome. I mean, it really is great to be here. That was fantastic. Thank you. Your voices are incredible, and just so good to be here with you guys this morning. Um, you know, as I was thinking about what I was confessing, and um, I thought uh, what Satan was doing in my mind was just bringing to mind this, my past week and all the things that would disqualify me to stand before you. And um, there are many. And, um, but I also began to think of um, how uh, if I did feel good about myself, that would be the wrong reason to be up here too. Because only God, only God through me, only God through his word can change our hearts, can give us new life. And so I, I, I stand before you ready to give you God's word, both preached and read and so and written. And um, I want to begin, but I'll begin in prayer. Father, um, we uh, bow a knee before you and Lord, search our hearts and uh, reveal in us our sin so that we will see it and hate it like you do and confess and repent and um, find forgiveness, Lord. Um, we don't approach you and, and you have a frown on your face. We're, we're surprised because you smile. And the reason you smile is you point us to the cross. And, and so, Lord, in your presence, we find forgiveness. And in your presence, we find hope. And so, Lord, let us drink deep from what you offer us through your word. Um, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, the, the title of the sermon is The Inefficiency of God. I don't know if you've ever thought that God was somehow inefficient, but um, I sometimes do. And let me tell you one of the most recent times where I thought that. It was on April uh, 28th, the day after the tornadoes hit. And uh, we were a part of Huntsville where nothing happened uh, for us. I mean, if we had not... Um, uh, if the electricity hadn't gone out, I would not really have known other than a s- storm blew through. But if you recall, um, that next night after the 27th, I mean, it was a clear day. And that night, there was no electricity, right? I mean, there was nothing. And so we went outside. We took my family outside. And we could look up at the stars and see stars I never thought I would see in Huntsville, you know, because of the light pollution, typically. But there were uh, stars that were revealed that normally you don't see. As I looked up, I, one of the first thoughts I had, I was in awe of God. I thought, wow, amazing, God. But also, I immediately went to why. And then my why was because I know that, um, uh, and some of you NASA guys you might, might correct me on some of this, but um, a, uh, a light year is about 6 trillion miles. And so it's the distance that light will travel in a year, 6 trillion miles. And so if I could find a North Star, I was looking at a star that light was 434 years old. So I was looking at the, the, the North Star is so far out, it takes the light that far to travel. And so I'm looking out at a vast space and wondering, God, why do you need all that space? I mean, why that much space? And the Hubble tele- uh, the telescope now can show, see galaxies that are 100 million light years away. So that they're billions of years old. Trillions of years. I mean, there's, there's stars out, out there that are that old. They're that far out in space. Space is massive. And I just look up and I go, gosh, why do you need all that space, God? And even as a, I got back to thinking that, well, God, you know, have all that space. Why? And uh, when I was a kid, I watched a lot of television. That's probably why I'm very warped, typically. And in the afternoons, I don't know if you watched the Warner Brother cartoons, you know, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, but there was a cartoon I remember so well. I think it was Macintosh, the two little squirrels or chipmunks, 
and they were, they were in a, a factory where they made a number of things that used wood. And this cartoon, I remember, they had these giant logs that came off of trucks, and they stuck it on a giant lathe, and they spun it down all the way to a toothpick. You everybody remember that? And this little mechanized hand with its pinky out grabbed the toothpick, brought it over, and dropped it in a little box. And when I look at space and I look up, I think, God, you're taking a giant tree and you're reducing it down to a little toothpick. Why do you need all that space? It seems very inefficient to me. Why? Why millions of years? Why thousands of years? Why all of that? And so not only does God seem inefficient with space, because I think about even our galaxy. I mean, we're like a grain of sand on a beach that's millions and trillions of miles wide and long. And so... Somehow God has ratcheted everything down to one planet and one part of this planet on one hill. And it seems so inefficient. Like, why? Well, how about this, too? And that's not just space that God seems inefficient. What about time? See, in my Bible, if I go all the way to Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament. I've written in there, and then there was 400 years of silence. Because the next prophet that spoke was John the Baptist, and that was 400 years later. So there was a 400-year gap where God was silent. 400 years. That's how long it takes me to see the North Star, the light come and travel. 400 years. But then if we go to Isaiah, Isaiah was prophesying and talking about Jesus coming. That was 600 years later it all came true. That's a long time. And King David was 1,000 years before Jesus. And Moses was like 1,500 years before Jesus. God takes a long time to do things. He seems very inefficient. In my mind. And, and then I had a professor. Let me just see if I keep pulling you really in on this. I had a professor in seminary where he sort of talked tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but he said it seems like God has a plan of spreading the gospel a little bit like a scorched-earth approach. Because as the gospel spread from Palestine, you know, in the Middle East, it went up to Turkey, into Europe, and on to England, and across the United States, look what the wake is behind it. Turkey is now a Muslim country. Europe is full of empty churches. I know it is America next. I don't know, but I know there seems to be like a scorched earth approach, and it seems very inefficient to me. Now, how about this? Our situations and circumstances, personally, our situations and our circumstances seem to point to God's inefficiency too. If you've ever been in a doctor's office, an oncologist's office, and they tell you the news, how all of a sudden, all of your years up to that point seem like they're just wasted because now of that new news, maybe it's cancer. It seems like, well, why? why? Why why now? I mean, why? But it also seems, too, that things can happen in an instant. But how about this? Maybe you've been pursuing something for 12 years, maybe. You've been pursuing it, no matter what it is. Maybe it's a position, a job, anything. You've been pursuing it for 12 years and nothing. With me, we have a son. Our our oldest son, Billy, is autistic. He's 19 years old. And for years and years, by the time he was seven, we knew there was something really wrong. And so for all that time, we pursued a cure or something. Doctors all across the country spending tons of money going here and there to fix him. Nothing. In fact, in a lot of ways, he got worse. So we look at that time. Why all that time? Twelve years can seem like forever, but then twelve seconds in a doctor's office can seem like forever too. And so I, I don't know if you've ever gotten to this point where to even ask, well, why even pursue anything? I mean, why pursue anything? Why bother if at any moment it all can come to an end? Or if all that will happen is 
that will just suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and nothing will change, nothing will get better. Not only does God seem inefficient, but he appears rather random too. Now, I can't be the only one in the room that thinks that. I mean, I can look in the stars. I can look at my life. I can look at situations. I can ask and struggle with the whole notion of God. And maybe you're here and you don't even believe in God. And you're saying, yeah, you know, this whole idea that God takes forever. And if there is a God, you know, if, he, if there really is a God, why, why can't he spread his word? Why then is there a sort of a scorched earth approach to the spread of the gospel? I mean, why? Now, we're going to look at a passage in Mark 5. So if you have your Bibles, it's Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And I'm going to say when we read this passage, there's a lot of God's inefficiency all over this seems very inefficient. And we're going to um, ask the question, why, together sort of collectively and say, well, why? But let me also just telegraph kind of where I'm going with this. This is something that I've learned. Although we're going to ask the question, why, this is something that I've learned over time, that it is better to know God than to know why. It's better to know God than to know why, or to know what, or to know how. It is better to know God than to know why, what, or how. That's, I'm just telegraphing just a little bit where we're going. And we're going to look at this in sort of a time and space element too. Because if you think about it, think about your circumstances, whatever you're going through. Um, they have a time and a space element to it. Um, it, ha- it has a, so when someone calls me and says, Bill, I have a problem. So when you have a problem, it sort of takes up space. It's something. It's a thing. You have a problem or you have a mess on your hands, whatever it is. It's this kind of a thing, so it takes up space, but it has a time element, too, because if someone calls you up and says, hey, I have a problem, we say, well, how, when, and when did this happen? Oh, it's been going on for 12 years, or it just happened. So it has a time element, and it has a space element. It has something. It takes up space and time. And so we're going to look at, and we're going to, I'm going to go through verse by verse, as it were. Not, not every verse, necessarily. Um, but we're going to look at this, and look at the inefficiency of God, and then we're going to see something really amazing. I hope. Okay, so let's begin in verse, uh, 20 of, verse 21 of chapter 5. <clears throat> and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus, he went with him. Now, we're going to learn later in this verse that his da- the age of his daughter. Jairus is a uh, synagogue ruler. He sort of runs the synagogue. And a lot of the synagogue rulers were Pharisees. But, um, and he would have heard of Jesus. Jesus would have been in his synagogue. And so he knows Jesus and he goes to him. And we learn later that he has a daughter and she's 12 years old. 12 years is big in, this, in these verses here. Okay, so we'll listen out for that. But we learn in Luke, as he tells this story, we learn that she is the, an only daughter. So now we get the picture. She's 12 years old. She is dying. This is his only daughter, the apple of his eye, right? The thing that this man has, Jairus has, is the thing that's got his time now and filling up every space of his life is a dying daughter. And he's desperate. And he goes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, here's what I have, a dying daughter. And she's only 12. 12 years is not enough. It's just not enough. It's not enough time. She's my little girl. She's my daughter. Come quick. Now, don't miss this. This man has God by the hand. 
he's able to go right up to Jesus and go, come on, come with me. We're going to go to where my daughter is because you're going to heal her. He has God's attention. And let's go. Follow me, he says. And Jesus went with him. Now, verse 24 and 25. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, it's important. This crowd is massive and it's thronging around Jesus. That means that it's pushing in on him. So Jesus is having to weave his way through the crowd. Everybody's touching him. He's being touched by everyone. He's bouncing off of people. And I don't know if Jairus grabs him by the hand or he's sort sort of pulling him by his coat, I mean, or whatever. But this man is bringing Jesus through the crowd. And the crowd is thronging and pushing up against him. Everybody is touching him. And then there's a plot twist all of a sudden. We meet, we meet another character. We meet a woman. And we learn that she has, has a, ch- a discharge of blood, a continuous. This is, this is what she's been living with for 12 years. 12 years. Now, if we read in Leviticus, we have an idea of what's going on in this woman's life. Leviticus tells us if you have an issue of blood, you can't go to worship. She could not go to the temple. She could not go to the synagogue. And I can just imagine her whole life for those 12 years, people would point and gossip. She also, if she was married, she couldn't make love to her husband. If she had kids, she got no hugs. And she's had, if she had kids, and maybe her youngest was like two or three, that means for all of that child's life, and that child's 15 now, maybe even off and married, she never got hugs. She couldn't hug her child. She couldn't, because no one can touch somebody who has an issue of blood. And so, and the other thing is, too, if she went in public, she had to announce to everybody what her problem was. Can you imagine that? She had to tell everybody what her problem was so that they would stay away. And so rather than a kind, loving smile, she got wide eyes, people backing up, grabbing the kids, and pulling them away. That was her whole life. And she got no hugs. And on the most discouraging day, there was no one there to rub her back just to tell her it's going to be okay for 12 years. She has a circumstance. She has it. And it's filling up every ounce of her time. And these are 12 long years. It's forever. Where is God? What, 12 years? Really? And it gets worse. Verse 26. And she, had, and she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And it was no better, but, grew, but rather it grew worse. So many physicians. I mean, who can relate to that? right? Many physicians with many different ideas, many different costs. She was totally, every ounce of money she had was now gone. For 12 years, she was looking for an answer. In first century Palestine, a woman with an issue of blood, it was humiliating over and over and over again. If you've ever suffered from something chronic, something that just, you go to doctor after doctor. Now with the internet, it's worse. Google whatever you got. There's a hundred different opinions and a hundred different locations around the world of where you can go to fix whatever it is you have. And so she lost time. She lost hope. She lost money and she lost ground because it got worse. She said, spent all she had and she was no better, but she actually did get worse. Now verse 27 and 28. And she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For, he, for she said, if I can touch even his garments, I will be made well. 
And so I love this part of this because it says that she had heard about Jesus. And now I can, I can relate to this whole idea of trying to fix someone or something or whatever's going on. You go around and try to solve it. And then this part, too, where she said she's heard about Jesus. I've heard about Jesus, too. I've never seen him. I've never touched him. I've heard about him. I've heard about him in the word. I've heard about what he's done. And that's what she'd heard as well. She heard about what he has done. She heard that through his words, he could make someone who was crippled stand up, pick up his mat and walk. She'd also heard that he could calm a raging sea with his words. Peace be still. It was all calm. She'd heard this. She heard that all he said, he told someone with a withered hand, stretch it out. And it became whole. And so she had heard, just like you and I had heard about Jesus and that he forgives sins and that everything I ever had done is known by him and he can forgive sins. And so we hear that too and we go to find healing just like her. And so she goes and she risks everything because she has to be silent. She risks everything to go and touch his garments. And then verse 29, it says that after she just touched the very edge of his garments, it's a little tassel. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And so in a moment, 12 long years, is over, just like that. She has what she has been longing for for 12 years. Every, think about it. Every day, she thought, if I could just get rid of this, if this blood could just stop, I could hug my kids again. I could make love to my husband. I could, I could go into the crowd and not have to announce what's wrong with me. And all of a sudden, done. It's fixed. Everything she wanted for 12 years is done. But here's the thing. That's not good enough. Jesus wasn't going to let her just be, go disappear off into the crowd because it's never enough just to be healed. That's not enough. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And I love this part, verse 31. And his disciples said to him, I think it's in the Greek. I think they go, dude. <laughs> they go, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Who didn't touch you? This is crazy. And he, but then it says, Jesus looked around to see who had done it. See, Jesus is struggling through the crowd to go and heal somebody. He's on his way. The, the ruler of the synagogue has the attention of God. And God is walking with them. And they're going to go heal his daughter, keep her from dying. And everybody's touching Jesus. Time is of the essence. If he stops, she can die. And the disciples say exactly probably what the ruler of the synagogue was saying. was like, Jesus, are you kidding me? You're going to stop to figure out who touched you. Stopping now seems very inefficient. Makes no sense. In fact, it seems crazy. Dare I say stupid. The text tells us in verse 32 that it's really clear that Jesus was intent on finding this woman. He was going to find whoever it was that touched him. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, um, the circumstance she had, the bleeding, had filled every space and every moment of her existence. It began to define her. Everything about her was fixing this problem. It was now gone. She now had what she'd been looking for for 12 years. Jesus was not going to allow her to stay there. She still hadn't found what she's looking for, what she really needs. 
because it is better to know God than to know what or why or how. It is better to know God than to find the answer to your dreams, whether it's healing physically, whether it's financially, being exactly where you want to be. It is better to know God than to have that. And Jesus knows that. She doesn't know that yet. And so he calls her out and takes her from a place where she wouldn't be known, takes him to himself because he wants a relationship with her. That's the best. That's the best. She thought she now had what she thought was going to complete her and fill her time with meaning. But that stuff like that is never enough. It never is. And she falls at Jesus' feet, just like the ruler of the synagogue did when he came to Jesus. He fell at Jesus' feet. She falls at his feet now. And she opens up. She tells him the whole truth of what has happened. She confesses everything to him. She tells him the whole truth, it says. And now she finds what she really needs, trusting Jesus and telling him everything. It is better to know God than to know why or how or what. This is true peace. The kind of peace that we're all looking for is found in a relationship with Jesus. Just him. He's enough. Not knowing why or how or what. And so verse 34, and then I love this. Jesus said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus calls her daughter. Now, now she's part of the family. But I like to think, too, he has a lot now in common with the ruler of the synagogue. Because the ruler of the synagogue, his daughter is dying. Now Jesus stops and looks at her and says, daughter. He is saying, you know, like this synagogue ruler, I have a daughter. It's you. And I will stop anything. I will stop anything and everything to make you safe, make you my concern, and I will fight for you to be mine. I will rescue you. Because Jesus is saying to her, you know what? Twelve years is not enough for me either, for you to be my daughter. I want eternity with you. Just like the ruler of the synagogue, twelve years is not enough. Twelve years with you, my daughter, is not enough. I want eternity. I want us to have a relationship. And Jesus stops everything. It seems inefficient, doesn't it? But he searches and finds her and calls her into a relationship and says, now you can have peace. Now this is what you've been looking for. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking to her, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So I imagine Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, just kind of his jaw dropping and going, really? Really? You stopped everything and my daughter died. This happened. I, I can't imagine him just thinking, how did this happen? I had this man by the hand. I was taking him through the crowd. We would have made it. I mean, 12 years seems like forever, but those 12 minutes probably when he was talking to the woman seemed like forever too. Jesus seems very inefficient here. He seems highly distractible, sort of ADHD, uh, sort of very much unable to focus. Seems that way. Because we ask that question too many times when our circumstances change. Why now, God, right? And, And why so long? So if you've ever been there with God, confused and frustrated, with how things are going, how long things are taking, or how sudden something happened. If you've ever said, I, I think I, I've said this, exactly what these folks that came from the city that we gave the news, he said, why trouble Jesus anymore? And I said, too, well, why even bother? If this is going to happen in my life, God, 
why do I even bother? You know, if this is going to take this long, why bother? I've been there. Verse 36, 38. But overhearing what they say, said, now Jesus is still there. This is another thing to take away. Jesus is always there. He is overhearing everything. He's overseeing everything that happens. He overheard what they said. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when Jesus says to him, do not fear, he's essentially saying to him, do not let what you see, don't let what you see be the source of your life. Don't let your circumstances be what feeds you because those are not the telling thing. I'm what gives you peace, not your circumstance. So now take space and time and fill it with trust. No matter what the circumstance is, fill it with trust. Believe, Jesus says. Walk with me in trust. Jesus is saying, let me take you through the circumstance. Before, Jairus was probably, I don't know if he had him by the hand, but he was leading Jesus. And now that Jesus is, he, and Jesus has created this new circumstance, hasn't he? And Jesus is saying, no, now let me lead you through this circumstance of the death of your daughter. And in fact, Jesus would be saying, I'm the one that created it. I created the, de- the delay. I stopped. I looked for the woman. I spoke to her. I did all this. I created that delay. Now let me lead you through it. Let me walk you through this. Trust. Believe. Believe me. Now one of the things that uh, Jesus walked into was a lot of mourning, a commotion. Now if you died, uh, or someone you knew died in the first century, uh, you would hire people to come and mourn. That was what you did. <laughs> they were sort of a professional guild of mourners. And they would hire them. And they would come and they would wail and cry, sort of get the crowd kind of worked up. That's who's there. When Jesus walks in, there's a paid professionals crying and mourning. And so, um, and they will cry. And then we'll see here in just a moment. They'll switch at the drop of a hat. Watch this. Verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So these professional mourners are wailing one second, laughing the next, mocking Jesus. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Jesus is saying to us and to the crowd, everyone there, he's saying to us, someone who is dead to me is like someone who is asleep to you. See, I can't get my hands around. Jesus said, no, she's just sleeping. I know how to wake up my daughter. I just kind of, sweetheart, let's go. You're late. You know, let's get up. And I know how to do that. I can't bring someone back to life. Jesus can. But he's saying, just like you would wake up your daughter, is me giving life to somebody. And see, for you to reach down and touch your daughter is like me reaching across the universe and placing that star out there. She's not, a, she's not dead. She's asleep. Jesus has the power within him because he's God. He can reach down. See, I can reach and touch my daughter. He can reach across the universe and stick out a star. He can speak words of life. Come, rise. Just like I can say to my daughter, please, sweetheart, get up. And then in verse 41, he says these words. He says, taking her by the hand. See, he just reaches down. It's like Jesus reaching across the universe, trillions of miles to the very edge of the universe. 
he can reach down and touches her. And then he says these words. He says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. It's like him saying, sweetheart, some sort of pet name, sweetheart, get up. And she gets up. She's alive. She wakes up. She's not dead anymore. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. The same time this woman lived with all this issue of blood for 12 years, this little girl grew up. And Jesus can cure this, and he can bring someone from the dead. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he, Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. In no time at all, Jesus can cure. Just like that. It takes no time for God to do this. Now, one of the things, if you look at in the, the text very closely, the ruler of the synagogue, the dad whose daughter was just raised from the dead, you don't read that he, he was smiling or that there were tears of joy or that he was jumping around, although I don't necessarily doubt that that happened. It says that he was amazed. He was amazed at what happened. And so, even though he, he found what he was looking for, but he got more. He got the glory of God. He got God's glory. So he looked at a situation that was hopeless, that God had led him to, the circumstances. And then he looked at it with amazement because he saw God's handiwork. He saw the power of God. And so he got amazement. He got the glory of God. The vast distance between his hopes and reality, the circumstance, the horrible circumstance. Now just take your circumstance, whatever it is whatever you're hoping for, whatever has happened, and you look at that, it becomes the backdrop for God's glory. You will be amazed. It's a promise. God is overhearing everything. Your end result of your current circumstance is amazement, for you will raise a hand to God and say, glory to God. So I look at the sky now, and I go, oh, how did you do that? How did you put that? How? No, it shows the glory of God. The glory of God. Because you know what? It's never the healing. It's never the comfort and ease that we long for. It's never that. It's not the what or the why or the how. It is better to know God than to know why or what or how. Because you know what? Time confuses, doesn't it? It confuses us. Because we say, well, why now, God? Uh, Why so long? Circumstances confuse and distract Because they become the things that define us. And God defines us. You're my daughter. You're my son. But no, my circumstance. No, you're my daughter. And you're my son. And that's enough. That's enough. And you know what? If we um, let our circumstances and uh, and our situations define us, it'll make us shallow people. Because we will hook our joy and attach it to whatever our circumstance is. It'll make, us, it'll make us just like the hired mourners. We'll cry at our circumstance, and then we'll get angry at God and mock him when it doesn't change or he says something. And so we become like hired mourners. We become very shallow people because it's not about who, why, or what. I mean, it's about who, but not what, why, or how. It's about who. It's about God. It's better to know God than to know why. Now I'm going to close you with two things very quickly. There's a Dutch proverb that I ran across and uh, years ago, and I've been telling my kids, and they hate it. <laughs> they absolutely do. I, um, but the Dutch proverb is this. Never let a 
child or a fool watch something being made? Don't let a child or a fool watch something being made. Because if you're building a boat, maybe a ship, right, and you're building it out of wood and you just cut down a tree and you've made this little plank about this big and you're carrying it and a fool says, what are you doing? I'm making a boat. The fool goes, well, it doesn't look like a boat. Or a child says, well, how many people are going to be on your boat? Oh, I should hold about 50. They won't fit on that. So never let a fool or a child watch something being made. And I'm a fool when I look at the night sky. <laughs> and I go, wow, how did, why? That's awful big, guy. Do you know what you're doing? So never let a fool or a child watch something being made. Because when you say it doesn't look like a boat, the maker will say this, I'm not done. What it will be is not complete. Trust me. Trust me, I'm making a boat. I promise. Now, one last little illustration, too. The Passion of Christ. Did you see that movie, the Mel Gibson movie? I mean, if you were a Christian, you had to go. <laughs> you know, get your, get your Christian card punched. You had to go. But it was from 2005. I saw it one time in the theater, and there was one scene I remembered, and I went back on and a few weeks ago and looked on Google to watch it again on, on YouTube. But I remembered it. I remembered it exactly. I saw it one time. It had a huge effect on me. It was the part where... Um, where Jesus is carrying his cross. He's been, already been beaten. He's bloody. He's got the thorn of crowns on. And Mary, his mother, wants to be able to see him and say something to him. And so she runs ahead, and she gets to a place where she can speak to him and maybe even touch him. And she's there waiting. And it's at the end of an alley, and she can see at the end of the alley, and here comes Jesus, and he's framed by the, the end of the alley, and he falls down, just lands. The cross falls on his head. It's horrible to see. But she, in her mind, remembers him as a little child falling and stumbling and hurting his knee. And she runs to go help him as a child. So they're interspersing these scenes. And she's seeing him as a child. And then she's seeing him as an adult. And she runs and she says, gets right to his face. And she says, I'm here. I'm here. And then Mel Gibson does something really amazing. He takes a passage out of Revelation 21. And he puts it there in that scene. It's not in the scripture, but he does it. I think he did a great job. And what, what, what Jesus says to Mary at this time... And he's, he's being crushed by the, the, uh, the cross. He's bloody. He's exhausted. He's not going to make it. Best you can tell, he's not going to make it wherever he's going. And this is what he says to her. She, he says, see, mother, I make all things new. Just think about that scene. He's bloody. He, how can he make all things new where he is right there? He's about to go die. He's been beaten with an inch of his life. He's exhausted. He's not going to make it. And he says, Mother, I make all things new. He's quoting from Revelation 21.5. This is what it says. And he, Jesus, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. No matter what your circumstance looks like, if it looks like you're a bloodied crown of thorns in your head being crushed by a cross, whatever your circumstance is, Jesus is making all things new. And then this is what it says after that. He says, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. I am making a boat. (laughs) Trust me. I am making this world beautiful. I am making you beautiful. I am making all things new. Trust me. Trust me. Because here's the thing. A change in circumstance or a circumstance that doesn't change. That's what we all want, right? I want my circumstance to change. I don't ever want this to change. It's awesome. It's never what we need. It's not what you're looking for. It's found in a person. A person who pursued you across the vast universe. He zeroed in on one planet, on one hill, for you, 
He pursued you for a relationship. And so what we do is we go back to the cross and we fall, just like Jairus, just like the woman did. We fall and we repent of our mourning. We repent of our mourning over our circumstance because there's someone who is in control. It is harrowing at times. It is sad, the things we go through. But let's repent of our sinful reaction to what God has allowed in our lives. He's allowed this because he's making all things new. Let's repent of our doubt and our scoffing, our mocking laughs at God. You you can't fix this. No, there's no way. It'll never happen. That's wrong. Let's repent of that. And what we'll find there is Jesus will give us what we need. He'll give us peace. Peace in time and space. See, when we have a mess on our hands, he'll give us peace. When we have a situation, or our situation has us, he'll give us peace. Peace is found in trusting. Peace is found in trusting that it is better to know God than to know why. It is better to know God than to know why or how or what. Peace is found in amazement. Amazement at the glory of God. I don't have to look at the sky anymore and wonder. Why? Why that big? I just say it just shows the glory of God. He can reach across the universe and reach down and touch a girl and she can be healed. Peace is found in truth-telling, just being honest with God and with each other. Because you know what? I have nothing to hide from you. Because God knows it and I've been forgiven. And so I want you to know me and so I'll tell you. We need to confess to each other truth-telling. It's found in truth-telling. It's found in bowing a knee to what God has allowed and repenting of our sinful reactions to what he's allowed. That's what we need to do. Because we always hope that if we just knew why, then we would love God. Well, that's using God. It's leveraging God to get what you want. God, if you just told me why, then I would love you. And God says, no, just love me. I know why, and you don't have to know why. Your circumstance is the way it is. Why the doctor said what he said today. Why it's taken 12 years and not 12 minutes. I know, and that's enough. Well, let's do this now. Let's look at the stars, and let's do what the psalmist said, and then I'll close with this. Says the psalmist said, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, and I ask, who am I that you're mindful of me? The son of man that you even care for me. So I look at the cross and I say, that's how much you care for me. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. So if you still haven't found what you're looking for, my fellow fools and children, it is better to know God than to know why, right? Amen? Amen. Trust and believe. Let me pray. Father, oh yes, I look into the sky and I see the stars and I wonder, how is that? Why? Why so much? And you said, I'm not done yet. Trust me. I have plans. Trust me. I have many more people. Many people. I have many people in this area that are mine. And I have called you to go and help me gather them. That's my plan. My word is powerful. It goes forth. It heals little girls. It places moons and stars in the sky. And it brings life to dead people. Spiritually dead people. So go in that power into the, this, this village here. Go and tell them about me. My word will not come back void. It's powerful. Go up to people and essentially say to them, get up, wake up. And show them Jesus. Let's go forth now in that power. Because he's not done yet. And we can trust him in Christ's name.
Amen. Amen.